Listeners, uh, my name is Trey Lawson, and I'm James Hickson, and you're listening to Tomb of Ideas, Episode Two. Um, and for those of us who are new to the podcast, what we have been condemned to do is to dig through all of these long boxes of old Marvel horror-themed and monster-themed comics, and tell you guys what they're all about. Yeah, basically, we're doing an index show, but our topic is, again, Marvel's horror line, um, predominantly from the 1970s and then moving forward to the modern day. Um, we're going to be here a while. Yeah, and, and that's including every now and then you, you run into the odd thing that might jump out of that timeline a little bit. We had some of that in the first episode, but, but really, Marvel horror hits its stride around... 1972 or so yeah and like this last episode and of course this episode too we are going to have that throwback issue um just kind of like talking about something from the past that ties in usually through retcon um this marvel horror line yeah because once marvel sort of realized the value of Jack Kirby as sort of a property unto himself, they really went back to some of those early Kirby monsters and, and started pulling them back into continuity. With, with good reason, and we'll be talking about one of those stories today. Um, speaking of um, last time, one of our listeners from last time, Barry Reese, was nice enough to send us a copy of the official Marvel handbook, excuse me, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe horror 2005 edition and barry was nice enough to send that to us but in addition to that barry is actually one of the writers who contributed to that volume so we want to take a second to thank him for sending the volume to us it's going to work well as a resource for us as we move forward with the podcast although i can't help but feel a pickaxe a shovel some kind of tnt might have been more appreciated right i the book is awesome it's very cool thank you barry but um Send help. You may, yeah, like, call 911? I don't get cell phone reception down here. No, it, I mean, the Wi-Fi works, but I think we're locked out of anything not related to research. Right. Kind of like this filter at my school, where if I try to look at anything not um, Marvel Horror related, it says I can't look at that. Right. Speaking of comics, we have four we'll be talking about today. First up, we'll be talking about Strange Tales, number 73. Then we'll be talking about Marvel Spotlight, number 2. Tomb of Dracula, number 1. And finally, Astonishing Tales, number 12. And we'll be coming back just after this quick promo with Strange Tales, number 73. More prophetic than his prediction of space travel in Things to Come. 
more imaginative than his laser beams in War of the Worlds, more frightening than his warning of nuclear holocaust in The Time Machine. From H.G. Wells, history's most credible prophet, now comes his most incredible story, Empire of the Ants, a terrifying tale of civilization fighting for survival against armies of giant ants, ten feet tall, who control the human population by drugging them into submission. And man, the master, becomes man, the slave. Joan Collins, Robert Lansing, H.G. Wells, Empire of the Ants, from American International Pictures. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Empire of the Ants. They shall inherit the Earth sooner than you think. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Um, we're going to be starting our coverage today with Strange Tales, Volume 1, Number 73. The script on this one is by Stan Lee, or maybe Larry Lieber. Uh, pencils are by Jack Kirby. Inker is Bill Everett. Colors are by Stan Goldberg. Letters by Artie Simic. And cover by Jack Kirby. Right, and so um, we're, we're introduced to this protagonist named Frank. Uh, he's later retconned uh, to be the adventurer and monster hunter Ulysses Bloodstone. But right now we just know him as Frank. And he is summoned to the Natural History Museum by the curator uh, by the curator of the museum for the biggest story of the century. He hops on a jet and upon arriving at the museum is told of reports from Africa about a giant super intelligent army ant. Frank is skeptical but being overdue for a vacation, decides to accompany his friend to investigate. They arrive by ship in the port of Mom Mombasa, and are met by Kasinga, who serves as their guide and provides additional information about the giant ant. It turns out that the Soviet military used the African jungle as a site for atomic testing, which ultimately mutated one of the soldier ants, Gratu. Gratu then began leading the regular-sized army ants on a rampage from village to village. Soon after, the men come to a village currently under attack from the ants and see with their own eyes that Gratu exists and can communicate telepathically. They realize Gratu's next target is Mombasa, and quickly persuade the local officials to evacuate. However, rather than attack, Gratu leads the ants straight for the ships in port, so as to spread his reign of terror around the world. Thinking fast, Frank devises a plan and uses himself as bait to draw, to draw Gratu out. The others then drop the city's entire stockpile of sugar on Gratu, causing the rest of the army ants to swarm on him. Leaving Gratu apparently dead, Frank and his friend board the ship and begin their return voyage to the U.S. All right, so um, first things first, this is a very short story. Yes. It's only, I think, about, what, six pages? Right, and, and, and that sort of economy um, basically uh, doesn't give a lot of room for exposition or character work. I mean, again, like Frank, we... The, the story almost aggressively refuses to develop him as a character. Uh, we get his name from the text of a telegram. Yeah, and, I mean, if it wasn't later retconned that this character is Ulysses Bloodstone, um, I don't think we'd be caring. No, not at all. 
uh, this, I mean, this is, like I said, it's a very short and ultimately very forgettable story. Right. Um, and it's not entirely clear what Frank does. Um, the, the biggest story of the century line suggests that he might be a reporter in sort of the golden age two-fisted journalist mode. Which I like. Right, but this isn't a very interesting one. No, I mean... And we talk about the the fact this is just six pages. You know, nowadays I, can, I complain about the Brian Bendis deconstructed comic book, you know, where you tell Spider-Man's origin story over, like, six issues. Right. But, again, this is a very, very tightly compact comic. And... I don't think you're getting a lot from that very tightly compact thing. It's like slices of a story that have been arranged in panels and slapped in six pages. Right. Um, and I was also going to make a snarky comment about uh, the creators of this comic being inspired by the movie Them. But amazingly, that movie actually came out a few years after this story. So Them might have been inspired by this story. I mean, it's possible. Them is a better story. I mean, um, so them just them is a better story just by virtue of not having to go to Africa to tell it. Okay, yeah, and the Africa angle is something that worried me. I mean, this story was published in 1956, right? Right. Um, 1956 story set in Africa. I, I read that, and I was getting myself set for some really bad racism. Right, and. It's there. It's not as bad as it could have been, but it's there. No, I mean, it's not like, you know, Tim Tim in the Congo, but, I mean, there are definitely natives speaking pidgin English right. and depending on a blonde white guy to save the day. Yeah, and just in general, a whole lot of unfortunate decisions being made. Because, uh, I mean, there is no reason a native African guy could not have figured out Let's pour sugar on the giant ant and have the other ants swarm him. Right. Yeah. There isn't the the. Go ahead. Just the the colonialism that's sort of baked into this story is really problematic. The white savior. Uh, yeah. Aspect. I mean, you know, there is nothing so special about the hero or the plan he comes up with that a black guy couldn't have done it. <laughs> right. But also in this issue, let's not forget communists. <laughs> Yeah, hold on, what's the line again? Um, many months ago, white men came to desert north of here. Oh, God, okay. Came to desert north of here. They came from behind what white men call Iron Curtain Country. Communist, no doubt. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently the atomic bomb that changed Grotto... Grotto? Grotto. Grotto, that changed Grotto... Um, <laughs> into the giant master of ants was a Kami atomic bomb. Right. Which, okay, it makes no sense for presumably the Soviet Union to be testing atomic weapons in Africa. No, like, why would they invade another continent to, to do weapons tests? Exactly. That's... You, want, you want to do weapons tests in a territory that you control that you could observe at your own leisure, that you do not have outside interlopers observing it as well. Right. I mean, it makes n no sense whatsoever to drop 
this bomb in Africa when you drop it in Uzbekistan. Right, or the Siberian wastes. Like, there are plenty of places where they could be working on weapons tests without having to deal with the populations of places they don't control. But I think what the writers wanted is that they wanted a commie angle, and they wanted it not to be an American's fault. Right. Which, you know, pretty much perfectly describes comic books from 1956. I think this is definitely post-comic code. I would say so. And I think... Yeah, I'm thinking definitely the story we covered last time, the Dracula story, is pre-Comics Code. Only just, but, I mean, it seems pretty close to the edge, but yeah. But, I mean, there's a definite difference in, I think, tone. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, again, we have the supernatural element. This is a strict science fiction element. Right. And, you know, you definitely have... Um, I mean, there really wasn't any kind of geopolitical angle being portrayed in the um, Dracula story, but this very much has the American yes sir, America, best country on earth kind of attitude to it. Right, there, there is this sort of expected patriotism that, that's sort of built into the main character. Yep. Which, I think we find out, isn't Ulysses Bloodstone not American? I think that's the case. Um, but yeah, I haven't well, read any Bloodstone in a while. Uh, it's okay. We'll be reading a lot of it down the line. But yeah, I mean, that, that's basically why we talked about this story. It has a character who is later retconned to be Ulysses Bloodstone, and we'll definitely be talking about him, or at least his daughter, a lot more much later in the podcast. Absolutely. But yeah, I'm pretty much done with this issue. How about you? That's all that can be said. And then this is just one story. Uh, Strange Tales was an anthology book. None of the other stories are any better. No, and none of the other stories, even though this Steve Ditko one has really nice artwork, um, none of the other ones, none of the other ones have ever been retconned into being any kind of significant events in the Marvel universe. Not really, no. Um, so this one is notable by virtue of both the protagonist and the monster being retroactively added into the Marvel universe. Um, the rest of the stories in that anthology are both sort of forgettable in terms of story and also, in the long run, not all that important. Yeah, I think you had me... I mean, I was going to read the rest of, the art, rest of the issue, but I think you informed me that it's mostly just sci-fi O. Henry endings, which aren't really going to do us any good. Yeah, you got a bunch of uh, very Twilight Zone stuff. Like, the twist comes in the last couple of panels and sort of is supposed to pay off the rest of the story, but it's never really satisfying enough to justify the read, even at just a few pages per story. And none of them fall in the mandate of Mr. Gravely gave us, so we're not going to talk about it. Right. Right. Okay, so we're going to do another quick promo, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Marvel Spotlight number two. Werewolf by Night. 
Take it from Wolfman Jack, the critics and I agree. This is the most outrageous horror film that you'll ever see. Because David is having the most frightening nightmares of his life. I think I did some terrible things last night, things I can't remember. It may have been someone he ate. From the director of Animal House. A different kind of animal. An American werewolf in London, rated R. Now playing in a selected theater near you. Check your local newspaper for listings. And we're back, um, looking at Marvel Spotlight number two, which is the introduction of the story and character, Werewolf by Night. Cover date on this issue is February 1st, 1972. The writer is Jerry Conway, artist Michael Plug, inker Dan Adkins, letterer John Costa, uh, conceived and plotted by Roy and Jeannie Thomas, and the cover art is by Neil Adams. And let's begin. Jack Russell has been having bad dreams. As he awakens on the morning of his 18th birthday, he reflects it is a dream he has had many times before, but tonight has been the most vivid it has ever been. In his dream, Jack is chasing a mugger, and when he catches him, he kills him with his bare hands, his clawed, fur-covered hands. As Jack dresses, he notices a wound where a policeman shot him in his dream. It was just a dream, right? As Jack comes downstairs, we meet his family. His little sister Liza, his doting mother Laura, and his tyrannical stepfather Philip Russell. We also meet Grant, the family's abusive, brutish chauffeur, as he yells abuses at Laura. The Russell children don't understand how their stepfather keeps Grant around, but Philip advises them that the driver will not be fired. Later that night, Jack and his family and some friends are celebrating Jack's birthday at his home when Jack has some kind of attack where it feels like something is trying to burst out from within him. Jack flees his party just as a xenomorph bursts from his chest. Wait, no, wrong universe. Jack flees from the party and on his way out sees Grant working on the family car in the middle of the night. Jack realizes there is something odd about this, but this time the pain is too great. He flees to the beach just in time for his transformation to take place, growing claws, a snout, and thick brown hair all over his body. Yes, Jack Russell is a werewolf. After a fairly useless battle with a stray wolf in an abandoned house, Jack passes out and awakens the next morning on the beach outside his family's home. Jack's stepfather finds him there and advises Jack that his mother has been in a horrible car accident the night before while out looking for Jack. Seeing that Jack is upset, the family doctor gives Jack a sedative to help him relax. But as he falls into a drugged sleep, he hears his stepfather on the phone, Grant, arranging a meeting with the chauffeur and telling him he'll have his money. Jack wakes up hours later and rushes to his mother's bedside in the hospital. She is in critical condition, but insists that she must tell him the truth, the truth about his father. Jack's father had been a popular baron in a small Baltic state. The only mark on their marriage, in fact, was that he insisted on locking himself in the tower for three days and three nights every month. During one of these seclusions, however, lightning strikes the tower, and something is unleashed. After a series of savage animal attacks, the villagers appeal to Laura for her husband's assistance, but when they find the Baron is missing, they fear the worst. The villagers take it upon themselves to hunt down the creature, only to discover that the creature 
is a werewolf. And when he is, once the werewolf has been slain, discovering that the werewolf is in actuality the missing Baron. A morning Laura returns to the States and marries Philip Russell, who she insists is a good man and makes Jack promise that he will never raise a hand to just before she dies. At the same moment, the sun sets and an enraged Jack finds himself again transformed into a werewolf. Where Jack sees the dead Laura and knows who is to blame, the man called Philip and the chauffeur Grant. Using his innate werewolf instincts, somehow, Jack tracks Grant to a warehouse where he is hiding. Grant holds his own surprisingly well against a freaking werewolf, even having Jack on the ropes for a moment before realizing his adversary's true nature and trying to flee. Jack leaps upon him and rips his throat out with his teeth. After Grant's gory dispatch, Jack's stepfather Philip arrives at the warehouse with the aforementioned money, only to find Grant missing. A concealed werejack is ready to pounce on Philip from the shadows and take his revenge for his mother's death, only then remembering her dying request that he never raise a hand against his stepfather. So, a perplexed and seemingly remorseful Philip leaves the warehouse unharmed and unaware of the bestial stepson he leaves behind, as Jack Russell wonders what good is vengeance to a werewolf by night. This is a good comic. It's 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 it, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, let's go ahead and start with the cover. I really like the cover. Yeah, I really like the cover too. All the I mean, it's, it's art by Neil Adams, so you know you're gonna like right. it. Although I get the distinct depression that Neil Adams and Plug did not share notes. Right. Yeah. The the design of the werewolf by night isn't all that similar uh, in the cover uh, versus inside the book. Yeah, I mean, even the, the design of Jack Russell, human form is very different from what appears in the book. You know... Yeah, I, I almost feel like Stan Lee or whoever called up Neil Adams and said, yeah, we need a cover. The title's Werewolf by Night. Yeah, I mean... Um, in the book... Um, Jack Russell looks a bit more like a red-haired version of Fred from Scooby-Doo. Yes. He's, yes. There is sort of a Hanna-Barbera vibe. Yeah, there. I mean, he's a little bit more of a long hair. Um, he kind of wears some hip and hip cat clothing. Not quite hippie, but, you know, he's at least with it. Got the sideburns. Right. Um, the guy on the Neil Adams cover, gorgeous cover, He he's definitely a square. He's got, like, the sweater vest and the the very neat kind of still a little shaggy but kind of a neat haircut he's burt ward he, yeah he's burt ward very he's exactly he's burt ward and um the guy in here um he's kind of like if he's like fred and shaggy and daphne managed to have a kid together it's what he would look like <laughs> that's a little terrifying but yes <laughs> Oh, okay. But also, just in terms of the cover, I think it's really smart that rather than doing a single image, Neil Adams went panel by panel through panel by panel through a transformation. Yeah. Because that's what you're paying your money for is the werewolf, and what what's 
what defines any werewolf story is the the quality of the transformation. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, the even like like you said, the werewolf that's on the cover looks nothing like the werewolf we see in the book. The werewolf on right. Neil Adams' cover is like this kind of like big, bulky, shaggy thing. And Mike Plug's werewolf, um, he's lean. He's he's wiry. Okay. He, he's 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 athletic. He's a he's. Um, it's sort of like the difference between Frank Miller's Batman and Frank Miller's Daredevil. Yeah. Although I mean, no, that's actually perfect. I was gonna make another comparison, but that that works fine. Um, like the the cover is the big muscly Batman type, and then what you get inside is much more of the athletic, limber, uh, slim down but still powerful character. Yeah. Um, I guess let's turn to the next page. <laughs> Sure. Um, I think you've got some notes on this. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a nice reversal of expectations um, that that you start out with the character being stalked by a mugger, and then suddenly the intended victim is actually a werewolf. Yeah. Like this guy picked the wrong victim. Yeah, and and, and of course you know it's revealed to be a dream sequence or supposed dream sequence. Um, even though it's clear that he's dreaming about events that are actually happening. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's cool that, that even with the very first page, we're not really sure what to expect from this story. Right. And I think that, I think that is one of the strengths of the Marvel method. And that's writers like Jerry Conway, um, strengths of Jerry Conway, because Jerry Conway, um, at this point, I'm pretty sure he's younger than us. I, th I think yeah, he's, he's yeah. like 19 or 20 when he writes this story. That sounds about right. Um, next page, we get a nice old um, folk poem. Supposedly. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read this out real quick, because it's famous. It's something that gets cited a lot in werewolf stories. <clears throat> Even a man who's pure of heart and says his prayers at night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the moon is full and bright. And and that's just credited as old folk poem at the top of the page. Right. It it is no such thing. Um the Even a Man Who's Pure of Heart poem was invented for the nineteen forty one universal horror film The Wolfman. <laughs> It's it's not actual folklore. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms. And the autumn moon is bright. And actually, the original version from that movie ended not with uh, the moon is full and bright, but the autumn moon is bright. Um, transformations weren't linked specifically to the full moon until Frankenstein meets the wolf man several years later. Uh, it was really supposed to be more of a seasonal thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what, you'd only get werewolves around Halloween? Well, it autumn moon and when the wolfsbane blooms. The, those were your two things. So, I guess like okay, you get you get a werewolf 6 months out of the year. Sounds like it, which as opposed to, you know, every month. <laughs> yeah, but that would make for very limited stories with Jack Russell. <laughs> 
Right, right. So, anyway, I, I just think that's kind of funny that this old folk tale is really just something that comes from the 1940s Universal Horror movies. Yeah, and just for just a quick, quick note, um, that poem was written by create by screenwriter Kurt Z- Zodmak? Uh, Zodmak, Zodmak, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I actually, I remember watching the Universal Monsters documentary when I was a kid, and he had a good laugh over the fact that, you know, he wrote that as part of the script, and now it's just accepted as general werewolf lore. Yeah, it gets it it always gets cited in in books on on werewolves and stuff now and and it is totally from uh oh uh and I'm sorry we mispronounced it's uh Kurt Siodmak, I think. There we go. Well, you know, like John Green, mispronouncing things is my thing. <laughs> well, I did it too. But yeah, um it's it's kind of cool that this uh bit of pop culture has so seeped into the mythology of these creatures. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Looking at the same, at the page still, something I didn't notice before, um, the motorcycle cop is an LAPD motorcycle cop. So huh. that very clearly puts this in Los Angeles. Right. I think this is the first Marvel comic, or at least the first Marvel main character to be set in some place other than Manhattan, isn't it? It might be. Or at least not set in sort of the the mid-Atlantic northeast area, you know? Yeah, I mean, I know that there was a big thing a few years down the line with the Challengers being the first super team not in New York, being on the West right. Coast. And I guess the X-Men weren't specifically New York. They were, or at least not speci- they weren't specifically Manhattan. They were Manhattan adjacent. They were right. Westchester. That's a suburb, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, so... Yeah, this this is definitely taking place away from, like, Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and all those clean and shiny spandex heroes that we're used to right and that kind of explains why this guy did not get taken out immediately man thing man thing takes place in everglades that is true he is in florida he's in the southeast so he is definitely not in new york right. okay so again another marvel horror character who is outside of the center of the marvel universe proper and that's something we're going to see again and again, is these characters are not debuting in sort of the centers of superhero action in the Marvel Universe. They are on the periphery in a lot of ways. And in, in this case, on the West Coast with Man-Thing, um, Southeast uh, Florida Everglades. Um, and we'll see that with other uh, books as well, where we're not getting the same locations you would see in one of the superhero books. So I kind of like that. I mean, I, I like that this is happening on the fringes of the Marvel Universe, as it were. Yeah, both thematically and uh, geographically. Yeah, I think that's cool. Um, so let's see. I, don't, I think that's everything for that page. Right. Um, do you have anything else? I don't think so. Um, I mean, okay, and this is something that will continue throughout the issue, 
but I'll go ahead and call attention to it now. Like, it's kind of weird, right, that we get the werewolves in our monologue? Yeah, you're not used to this kind of bestial, unthinking monologue in a character. I, get, I suppose right. it, it could have shown up in Hulk before now. Perhaps. I mean, and it, it's a difference from something like Man-Thing, where Man-Thing we called attention to how kind of weird it was that you had that second-person narration, mm-hmm. where the narrator is, dire- is directly addressing Man-Thing as you. Um, and this isn't that, but it's still a little weird. It, it's like they're trying to figure out how do we develop these monsters as characters? How do we create some sort of um, attachment or identification with these monster characters with the comic book tropes of dialogue and caption boxes? Yeah. Um, so I think we can move on to Jack Russell's bedroom now. Yes. Um, Jack Russell wakes up. We meet his mom. Um, I think we've met the two main focuses of the story. Um, Jack Russell and then his mom. And, you know, mm-hmm. he definitely gets his red hair from her. Um, right. And I think we'll just flip ahead. I mean, okay, dude. If you have a gunshot wound in a dream and then you have the wound on your arm, I mean, he kind of just brushes this off. I mean... Characters in fiction suffering from lycanthropy are famously dense when it comes to these sort of things. And I'll get more into that later, because Jack Russell is really dense. (laughs) But yeah, he's like, "Um, my arm was slashed just as I'd been cut in the dream by a policeman's bullet. Suddenly it all came flooding back. That dream, was it a dream? Lord, what if it was real? And then his mother calls him down to breakfast. Right. So he goes down to breakfast, and the chauffeur is yelling at his mother. Like, I, I'll say right here, I'm as liberal and pro-worker as anybody on Earth, but when you have the empl- your employee yelling at your wife and treating your wife like dirt, he's going to be hitting the curb. Right, that's, I don't see how that guy keeps a job. Like, and not just yelling, but like the, the, the way that he's drawn, he's got his fist raised with his hat sort of uh, bunched up in it. Like, it's a really aggressive pose. Really aggressive. And I'm wondering if, like, if Philip is conspiring with Grant to kill Laura... Can you just take him aside and say, dude, keep it on the down low? I mean, heck. I mean, I guess Grant is not the smartest of men. That seems to be the case. But it also seems like this is something that happens over and over again. Like, uh, Jack isn't surprised by this. He says, oh, it's happening again. Which is, no. I mean, even if you're, like, a 90-pound weakling you're going to at least try to step up and help out your mom. I mean, I, right. I, again, I don't have the best relationship with my mom, but even I would step up and be like, okay, nope, sorry, you need to step off. And Jack right. is not puny? No. Um, he doesn't look like the sort of guy who gets in many fights. 
but he's not like weak. No, he he's. I kind of want to say he's like a. He's a bit of a pampered rich surfer boy. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that this issue takes place on his 18th birthday. Yes. Which, apparently, Lycanthropy waits for you to turn 18. Something like that. Um, it does seem like the, there there is some significance to that, that, that upon sort of reaching adulthood, that the, the curse manifests. Yeah, I mean, it, it's nice to know that lycanthropy observes the 26th Amendment. <laughs> Which, I think something like that happens in the old Hammer movie. Uh, Curse of the Werewolf, maybe? It's it's good, I recommend it. Oliver Reed is a white-furred werewolf, but um, something, something similar happens where it doesn't manifest until he's an adult. And I guess that's just so they don't get in trouble for all the stuff they get up to in the movie. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so I think we jump ahead here to... Um, yeah, Laura, I mean, Jack tries to bring up the issue of his mother, and his mother's like, Jack, please, Philip and I understand each other. So what, they're like swingers? I, I mean, it's the right, the right time period, I guess. Hey, I know how the 70s worked, I saw the ice storm. (laughs) Alright, so... A movie in which characters read Marvel comics. That's true. I, if 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 I thought of it, I would have like pulled up exactly what issue of Fantastic Four they were um, reading in that comic. But of course, you, our listeners, can send that to us by mentioning us at Tomb of Ideas on Twitter or emailing us at Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. We look forward to reading your response on the air. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I got a note here that says, since we're set in Los Angeles, does that mean we're going to meet the Champions or West Coast Avengers at some point? I wish. I love the wackos. <laughs> I, those are, the West Coast Avengers are great, and the Champions were underrated. Yeah. I mean, we will get to the Champions, because I'm pretty sure Ghost Rider was involved was. in that. Um, but, but I'm looking forward to those books. All right. So, I mean, Jack, he leaves his own birthday party. What a dick. Um, he transforms into a werewolf. He right. has a pretty useless fight with a werewolf in a with sorry with a wolf in an abandoned house. Right. What was the point of this fight? Um, I think that it has something to do with sort of introducing the the bestial nature of the werewolf, but also. There's a trope in werewolf stories of animals, actual, like, natural animals freaking out around werewolves because the werewolf is unnatural and cursed. Okay, well, you're the, I mean, Uh, you're the horror expert, if it makes sense. I mean, it's something that, uh, it happens in the remake of The Wolfman, the more recent one with Benicio Del Toro. Okay. Um, and it was supposed to happen in the original 1941, but they deleted the scene. But in that case, it was a circus bear that freaks out. And there was going to be this, this moment of the, the wolfman confronting a bear. Okay, so Jack Russell easily handles a wolf in this fight, right? I mean, his first outing as a werewolf. Right. But when he turns into a werewolf later, he can't handle this bruiser guy? Right. 
And I'm wondering if we're supposed to take that difference as being something related to the emotional conflict of Jack Russell at that point later in the issue. I don't know. I mean, um, let's see. So, I mean, I don't know. It just it makes no sense to me why he, why he has such a hard time fighting Grant here. Yeah, it, it's a little weird. Um, so I think then we cut to Jack in the hospital with his mom. Right. Um, she has had her car exit at this point from, you know, Grant cut the brake lines. Um, so she's in the hospital and she's explained to him the, how she met his father. And unlike other stories of similar veins, it doesn't take nine years and have a disappointing ending. Right. Sorry, I'm still pissed off about that ending. She talks about how she's backpacking through Europe, and she just happens to meet a baron with a castle and marries him. Score. I mean, is that not what you did when you studied abroad? Um, I didn't study abroad, Trey. Oh. I, um... Oh. I I, I I have a history degree, so um, I'm what they call poor. <laughs> Although, if I could have Dude, found a baron and married him, I would I would have. I have a master's in Renaissance and medieval literature. Ah, so ramen later tonight? <laughs> but yeah, no, um, needless to say, it strains credibility a little bit that while backpacking across Europe or whatever, she just mad, just out of the blue fell in love with a baron. And married him. Yeah. And per nothing, I just kind of like to imagine that this, like, vague Baltic state that she's in, you know, borders Latveria. Right. <laughs> like, this is like a fiefdom. <laughs> I, I, I just like that idea. Just... Because I like right. Doctor Doom. I mean, who well, does? Yeah. Other than well, other than Reed Richards. <laughs> Richards. <laughs> All right. So apparently, this werewolf curse is um, gained through genetic inheritance, right? Rather right. than a bite or a similar method like a scratch. Yeah. Yeah. And at this point. It hasn't been said whether it can be transmitted through the more conventional means, but Jack inherited it. We know okay, that Okay, so, is Jack Russell a mutant? Um, he is mutant-like. Because I'm suddenly imagining Jack in a new mutant-style uniform, and I'm really digging it. He's more of a mutant than Spider-Man is. Okay, although there was that weird thing in Spider-Girl where, like, May was not a mutant even though she genetically right. inherited her powers from her father, right. and that's why she couldn't join the X-Men in her universe, which was just weird. We won't get into that, because, again, this is not a Spider-Girl podcast. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely... I, I, could, I could foresee a scenario where uh, Charles Xavier would evaluate Jack Russell for uh, suitability in joining one of the X-Teams. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I don't, I don't, I don't think he would make the cut, but I could see Xavier. Now imagine, now I'm imagining Werewolf by Night, Man Thing, <laughs> Dracula, and the Living Mummy all as X Men. 
I'm pretty sure that all of those but Dracula end up on a team at They some do, point. but still, not X-Men. They don't have to wear the dinky little uniforms. I suddenly love the idea of Dracula being forced to wear the blue and yellow jumpsuit, <laughs> but it, but insist, but still insisting on wearing the, the cape over it. But the cape has the yellow interior now? Oh, of course. It's yellow and blue. It's going to be a navy blue exterior with a yellow lining. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get hiccups. <laughs> okay, um... As many times as Dracula has shown up in X-Men comics, I'm surprised this has not oh, happened. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, I thought for sure the stepfather was going to turn out to be some kind of monster hunter, or at least know about Jack's lycanthropy. I thought he... I mean, I could see that for sure. I disliked him as a character so much that I did not see even that modicum of being redeemable as a possibility. Well, I mean, I, I just thought it was too obvious that he was, you know, like, after her money and um, was hence secretly had some hidden side to him. But no, from, from what we could tell so far, he is just, you know, some guy who kills his wife for um, the inheritance, which, right. as this is 1970s, I'm expecting Columbo to walk in any minute and capture him. <laughs> yeah. Which, oh gosh, now, again, we're going off this weird tangent, but now I'm just imagining Columbo in a Werewolf by Night comic. Uh, one, one more thing. Um, is, is, your, is, your, is your stepson Jack a werewolf? One more thing. <laughs> uh, Grant, he was, he, he was definitely killed by, you know, massive claws. Um, yeah. You know, my wife had a, had a cousin once that was a werewolf. <laughs> Sure was sure was a nice uh, full moon last night, wasn't it? <laughs> oh gosh, which is is funny because I used to confuse Columbo and Kolchak when I was a kid. So, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Columbo is a little more competent than Kolchak. Extremely so, and it makes me extremely sad that Columbo is no longer on Netflix. Yes. So, do you think Jack's stepfather really meant for Grant to kill Laura? You know, I I really dislike the stepfather character, so I'm leaning toward yes. However, we, we don't really know at this point. I mean, I have not read ahead, so, I mean, don't spoil anything for me, but, I mean, he seems genuinely conflicted in the story when he's delivering the money to Grant. Right, yeah, I mean, there there is something like a glimmer of humanity there and and also that the mother seems genuinely devoted yeah to him. and i'm like there has to be a reason for this right right i i have a feeling we'll be seeing a lot more of of philip going forward okay um so again we've talked about the fight between grant and jack russell um mm -hmm. Again, how the heck is Grant able to hold his own against a freaking werewolf? Yeah, it, it's a little weird. Um, I mean, again, he's presented as a heavy. Um, early on in the issue, it's uh, like they, they comment on his strength and his formid formidability and his sort of ruthlessness and all of those things. So I, I guess it makes sense, but at the same time, Jack's a werewolf. It doesn't... No, it doesn't make any sense. He's got teeth and claws there should be 
no contest at all. Okay, one thing a little bit related to this is I really like the idea of the werewolf being uncomfortable in urban urban environments. Okay. And that's something that comes through in some of those scenes that that the werewolf seems not in his element when he's in sort of buildings and city streets and things like that, which is why, like, early on he keeps running into the woods. And so I could see maybe that being part of it, is that the werewolf is not sort of bringing his A-game because he's in weird surroundings that, that are not his normal hunting environment. I guess. But again, an abandoned house is not his usual hunting environment, but he takes pretty good care of that stray wolf. Right. right. Okay, on a related note, once Jack has killed Grant. What does he do with his body? Because the body is not there for um, Philip to discover when he shows up with the money. Right. I mean, does he eat him? I was about to ask the same thing. I can imagine a scenario where that is what happens. Doesn't the werewolf in... American werewolf in London eat a guy? Yeah. Isn't it his best friend? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. It's It's been a while since I watched that one, though. I'm more of a howling fan. Okay. See, I just imagined it to be one of those movies you had memorized. <laughs> now, now, Joe Dante's The Howling, the other werewolf movie of 1981. I am a huge fan. So does anybody ever find <laughs> Grant's body? Or is it just, like, um, still in that warehouse, which I presume that Philip owns? I guess it's just left there. Ew. Yeah, that, that's that's not going to be pleasant for the next person to, to come in there. No. Okay, so how does Jack's transformations work? Does he transform into a werewolf every night? Does he transform into a werewolf every full moon because you know the title would imply that he turns into a werewolf by night right um it's not clear here they, they don't really give us their version of the werewolf rules um, but i've read the next story in this series as show prep and it's not explained there either right um so it turns out that he has some degree of control over it, eventually. Okay, so we'll get there eventually. Um, so, it looks like the rules initially are during the night of the full moon and the two moons, or, or the two nights surrounding it. So the night before the full moon, the night of the full moon, and the night after the okay, full moon. Okay, so why wouldn't he, and again, I, I'm presuming that he keeps on getting these situations, and I, I, I admit I'm stealing a bit from Stephen Lacey from the Fantasticast here, when he talks about Werewolf by Night, why the heck doesn't he just lock himself in a tower like his dad did? Yeah, that never works out for werewolf characters, though. Like, Larry Talbot always tried that. They try it in other werewolf movies. The locking yourself away thing just never works. But, like... I, I mean, I come to this conclusion fairly quickly in this issue, and especially when one I read, I've read later. I, I, I'm thinking Jack Russell's pretty thick. I think he's kind of dumb. He, he is not 
the the brightest and, and and again that's interesting in itself because just like this is in Los Angeles as opposed to Manhattan most marvel characters at this point have been either super scientist or super scientist adjacent i mean right. jack russell makes johnny storm seem like a brain surgeon right and if you've ever read strange tales again thank you fantastic cast andy and steve and um, that's impressive. <laughs> I mean, th- th- this is the Johnny Storm who thought that nobody knew that he was actually the Human Torch. And thought that he had a secret <laughs> identity to protect. Even though, in the Fantastic Four book, he's like, I'm Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. But he didn't think anybody in his hometown would realize, oh yeah, the Johnny Storm who lives down the street and has a sister named Susan who looks just like this giant storm and Susan storm from the fantastic four is the human torch. Hmm. Yeah. Strange tales was weird. And I think Jerry Siegel wrote that. That wouldn't surprise okay. me. We're getting off on um, a tangent. This is not the fantastic cast. Although I very much recommend you listen to that podcast. They've been very nice to us. Um, moving on. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else, else to say about this issue? The level of domestic abuse in this story makes me uncomfortable. It's a good story, but that aspect of it is troubling. Extremely troubling, and it seems like nobody in the book is lifting a finger to stop it. Even Jack, who, who expresses concerns, expresses them to his stepfather. Right. Um, also, um... Or to his mother, rather. I don't know. Like, the, the dismissiveness of both the mother and the the stepfather of her treatment. It's just all, especially when compounded with the way that they, that uh, Jack is sort of guilt tripped over his mother being in the hospital when we all know it's a setup. Yeah. Um, Like all of that is just really unpleasant. I mean, again, I want Columbo to walk in and be like, Actually, um, Mr. Russell, one more thing. Uh, did you have Grant cut the brake lines? <laughs> but yeah, we don't get that, even though they'd probably be able to tell that. Right. Um, one thing that I also wanted to talk about, and this goes back to the beginning of the issue, uh, that first appearance of the, the werewolf at the beginning mm-hmm. of the comic, just in terms of art, uh, and I always call attention to little uh, tricks like this, because I think they're really cool. But um, the the switch from page 3 to page 4 on the page yeah. turn there, um, you go from a close-up of the werewolf um, to a close-up of Jack waking up, and they're almost mirror images of each other. Like, it, it's flipped, but, but in exactly the same pose. And that kind of... In, in film, they call it a jump cut, jumping from one edit to another but suggesting some sort of connection between the two images um but it's real it's done to great effect in the comic here jumping from the werewolf to jack waking up you automatically know this guy was that werewolf without them having to tell you i think in modern comics it would be a much more direct mirror image like they would find a way to either put the werewolf at the top of the page or put Jack waking up at the bottom of the page and, like, do a spiral read for the comic. 
Yeah, but I just think it's re- like doing it on the page turn. I think is perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've said all I need to say about Werewolf by Night. I really liked it. Um, I look forward to seeing more of what the heck's going on with the Russell family. Like, I want to. Right. I want to know what's and, going on with Philip. And also, as the Werewolf by Night begins, sort of making his way into the Marvel Universe proper. Which, again, I'm looking forward to. I'm still crossing my fingers for West Coast Avengers. Oh, he he meets them. Yes! <laughs> it's a while from now, but he does meet the West Coast Avengers. And Morbius. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm pretty sure all of that's in the same story. Yep. Anyway, we are going to go to another promo, and we'll be right back with... Tomb of Dracula, number one. I want to bite your finger. It's a Dracula game. Just set the clock. The clock. Just, try Just try your luck. If Dracula's cape opens, you have to put your finger in his mouth and press the lever. If he leaves a mark on your finger, you have to start over again. He didn't bite me! If you can sneak all the way around Dracula's house, you'll win the game. You're not supposed to bite people. It's a Dracula game. I want to bite your finger from Hasbro. Welcome back to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, and we are today very happily talking about a book that is the namesake for the podcast, Tomb of Dracula number one. Uh, the story is called Dracula. Cover date is April 1972. The writer is Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker, Gene Colan. Letter, John Costanza. Cover by Neil Adams, and editor, of course, is Stan Lee. So, we come upon Frank Drake, his girlfriend Jeannie, and her ex-boyfriend Clifton, driving through a dark and stormy Transylvanian night, when suddenly Frank accidentally runs into a ditch and wrecks their rented jeep. Their bickering as they walk through the storm suggests tensions between Frank and Clifton, even as they seem to have some sort of agreement or partnership. Meanwhile, in the nearby village, several locals debate the pros and cons of Frank Drake's ownership of the mysterious nearby castle. Frank and his companions arrive at the village tavern, where, after a tense discussion with the villagers, they arrange for a carriage to take them to what has now finally been identified as Castle Dracula. The driver, while professing skepticism, refuses to drive them all the way to the castle, and so the group once again finds themselves walking through the rain. In flashback, we see that Frank Drake has burned through his inheritance and found most of his friends to be less than generous in helping him get back on his feet. Flat broke, the only thing Drake owns is Castle Dracula which has been passed down through his family for generations, going back to when the family name was, in fact, Dracula. He shows Clifton a diary that proves he is a direct descendant of Count Dracula, and the two hatch a plan to open the castle as a tourist attraction. Upon entering the castle, bats swarm from above, attacking Genie. After they fly away, the three companions separate to explore the castle. Clifton, finally alone, reveals that he plans to scam Frank and somehow take charge of the castle himself. However, he takes a bad step 
and falls through a rotten section of floor. Clifton soon realizes he has accidentally discovered the Tomb of Dracula, and, being an idiot, removes the stake that is still thrust into the ribcage of Dracula's skeleton. Almost instantly, Dracula's body regenerates and he attacks Clifton, casting him even deeper under the castle. Next, Dracula reveals himself to the others, and Genie is instantly hypnotized by his vampiric powers of persuasion. Frank strikes Jenny to stop her from following Dracula, and uses the silver compact he gave her to temporarily dispel Dracula. Unable to feed on anyone in the castle, Dracula finds the greedy woman from the tavern scene earlier, who is far easier prey. Her body, bearing the mark of the vampire on her neck, reveals to the villagers that Dracula has returned. Dracula returns to the castle once again, and attempts to feast on Genie, only to find that she's now wearing a gold cross around her neck. Frank Drake reveals himself as Dracula's descendant, and once again attacks Dracula with the Silver Compact, this time by throwing it at Dracula's forehead. Dracula rallies, and seems to have the upper hand on Frank, when Genie regains consciousness and attracts the vampire's attention. As angry villagers swarm on the castle, Dracula compels Genie to remove the cross. Frank wakes up, and once again uses the compact on Dracula. By now, the villagers have set fire to the castle, and Frank carries Genie's unconscious body to safety. But once outside, he's devastated to find that she's dead. Or is she? Genie is now undead one of Dracula's vampire brides, and she leaves, following the large bat looming in the distance, as Frank is left alone and devastated. Alright, um... This book is glorious. This is a wonderful comic. Like, this this is Marvel horror, right here. Yeah. We hit it. Like, we have, we have achieved Marvel like, horror. Werewolf by Night is a little bit camp, um, yep. but this, this is solid. This, this, this is, is good really stuff. solid. And, and, you know, they're still playing a little bit with the O. Henry endings from the earlier horror stuff. Like, there's a little bit of that in that last page, but in a way that sets up for more story. Yeah, but like, I mean, even like the, um, where you talk about the O. Henry ending, where Genie becomes a vampire at the end, that has resonance. It's good. It's like the just the, the the way Frank looks on that last page is great. And I have a feeling that was Jerry Conway. Um, that that yeah. that twist is Jerry Conway at work. I mean, I really don't know where to start with this book. It's so good. Um, I think I talk. Go ahead. It. I mean, it, it's nineteen seventy two, and so I, mm. I just have to say, it feels like a Hammer Dracula movie, like Hammer Studios. They made Dracula movies from the late 50s into the 70s. Um, this was sort of at the height of those. And it feels like... You can feel the influence of what horror movies were doing at the time. Right. I think what's interesting is I feel like Marvel horror takes the best elements from Hammer horror, like stylistic elements and thematic elements but also takes a little bit of that fun and connectivity from the universal horror. Yes, for sure. 
and he mixes them up with superheroes. Yeah, because they're still doing, like, Marvel Method-style stories here, and, and it very much has that Marvel flavor. Right. Um, speaking of Marvel flavor, I complained last episode about Gil Kane's artwork not looking like my Marvel. You know, that kind of Jack Kirby, right. John Buscema, um, chiseled jaw, Marvel, you know, the, the, the Marvel style. And Gene Cole's right. artwork here is very much not the Marvel style. Um, but it works here. And it's glorious. Yeah. I don't think this comic would have worked if it had been filled with Lantern Jaw, Jack Kirby characters. No, because Dracula is not a Jack Kirby villain. No. I mean, although now I'm imagining Jack Kirby drawn Tomb of Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like. Jack Kirby drawing Dracula, you get something like Doctor Doom. Yeah, you do. Which, again, who doesn't love Doom? But sure, it's definitely different there. I mean, this this has weight. This is this story has weight to it. I, I, right. Again, a lot right. like the Man Thing story we talked last time. This one, it, it hits you deep. Yeah, and and they play fast and loose with the Dracula legend, but that's to their credit. They're not beholden to any one version. They pull the bits and pieces of work best from all sorts of Dracula Yeah, stories. for instance, I'm not quite sure that this Dracula is Vlad the Impaler. No, I... Well, I'm not sure if that comes up later in Marvel or it, it, not. It's weird, um, because you've got the connection to the Drake family. Right, and it's established that, that their last name yeah. used to be Dracula. And, of course, they changed it for obvious reasons. I mean, I would be all about putting the last name Dracula on a resume. <laughs> um, Professor Drac Dracula? Um, Professor Dracula. Yeah, like, I would be the opposite of the Gene Wilder character in Young Frankenstein. It's like, no, no, it's Dracula. Seriously? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I would have all my students looking skeptically at the red ink that was used to mark up their papers. Oh <laughs> you would, too. You really would. Um, <laughs> you're going to wear a cape to class. <laughs> I own a cape. Thank you. I own two capes. <laughs> what am I saying? I do, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So, we talk about Clifton. Clifton's an idiot. I mean, to varying degrees, all of the human characters in this book are idiots, but Clifton is the most idiotic of yes. them. Yes. Um, like, why does Clifton remove the stake? Because he's never seen a Dracula never, movie? Never, ever. Even though he apparently knows... Who Dracula is well enough to be like, we're going to make a mint. And like, is he planning on tricking Drake into signing over the castle to him? Or is he just planning on killing Drake? It's really not clear. And and the fact that we also have a love triangle going on on top of that makes it even yeah, weirder. I mean, I don't think I would go anywhere dark and secluded 
with my wife's ex-husband. No, no. I mean, I could barely stand to be in the same room as my wife's ex-husband, so... It, it's just, it's... I don't understand why anybody involved in this thought it was a good idea. No. Exactly. And, it, simply put, it wasn't. Right. And it is also kind of weird that Dracula apparently had a human family that survived, Yeah, right? like, so, is this a family that he had as Vlad the Impaler that continued on while he went and went being undead? It would have yeah. to be. Or I guess, like, I guess it could be that descendants of a brother or, or sister or something? I think we're, 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 we're avoiding the very... I mean, the question no one wants to ask here. Does vampire sperm work? And... I don't <laughs> want to get into that because I... I could... I could get into that discussion but I am not willing to. So, the lineage thing is kind of iffy. But right. the story is good enough where you don't care. Um. Yeah, I mean, Frank is a, despite his bad judgment throughout, he is a compelling character. Uh. I still, I do think it's weird that he keeps relying on that little silver compact. Yeah. Like, as soon as Dracula ran away the first time, I'd have started sharpening some stakes. Yes. At least he had the foresight to put the cross on her. Like I mean, he he had that. That is his smartest moment in the whole comic. Is when Dracula comes back and Frank has put that gold cross around her neck. Yeah, and but then he hypnotizes her to remove it, which is just very slick. I mean, Dracula right. is very clearly the smartest character in this book. Well, there's a reason his name is in the yeah. Title. Well, and and that reason is to sell books. But besides that, he is also the best character in the story. Yeah, we're to the point where you know. I think we lose most of this cast eventually. Yeah, I mean, and as as much as I like this story, I'm looking forward to getting some of those other characters in here, because there's a great sort of revolving supporting cast that builds up over time. But I think it's worth noting that this is pretty much the first um, Marvel book where the villain is the main character. I think, yeah. As um, as I've seen in the article, in some articles, there were like Doctor Doom stories and Astonishing Tales that were mm-hmm. Doctor Doom's the main character, but they didn't last long. They weren't able to maintain Doctor Doom as a regular feature. Right. Whereas this was an ongoing book for a seventy really issues. Long time. Yeah. Yeah, and and just as a side note, uh, the the whole uh, like Drake name um, that comes up in the movie Blade Trinity um, when they re- when their version of Dracula shows up, and I'm pretty sure he goes by the name okay. Drake. Yeah, I mean this is this is the uh, I think this might be the first character that we've talked about that definitely spawns no man. There's the man thing movie. I was about to say, the first character we've talked about that does spawn a film adaptation, but no, there's the Man-Thing movie, which we will be talking about way down the line. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about this issue. It's really good. If you haven't read Tomb of Dracula, start from the beginning. It's worth it. There are essential uh, collections out there. Um, you can probably get it on Comixology. It is worth a read. If you like Dracula stories, vampire stories, horror in general, or just want to see Gene Colan and Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway at the top of their game, then check yeah, out I mean, Tomb of Dracula. The book is excellent. Drake is a dumbass. I'm really ready for the next issue. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, when we come back, we'll be talking about Astonishing Tales number 12, Terror Stalks the Everglades. The Florida Everglades and old Milwaukee both mean something great to these guys. The Everglades means airboating, as close as you can get to flying without leaving the ground. And old Milwaukee means a great beer. Cold, crisp, old Milwaukee beer. And smooth, golden, old Milwaukee life. There's nothing like the flavor of a special place in old Milwaukee beer. Old Milwaukee and old Milwaukee life. Hey, guys. It doesn't get any better than this. All right, and welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. We will get to Terror in the Everglades in just a moment, but something we were talking about, excuse me, Terror stalks the Everglades in just a moment, but something we were talking about during the break, um, we've already t- praised Gene Cullen's artwork in this Tomb of Dracula issue. It is fantastic. But something I noticed when we were going through and talking about it is... There is a lot of cleavage being shown in this comic. There is. It, it's far more provocative than a lot of comics that you would see from around this time. Um, and, and again, we were talking about this earlier, but that's very much the Hammer Studios influence. And again, like we said, Gene Colan's artwork beautifully imitates the Hammer horror style. I've not seen a lot of Hammer films. Again, you're the horror... Um, enthusiast of the two of us but i think from what i have seen this comic translates that beautifully yeah to the point to the point where some of it seems kind of anachronistic like a lot of the villagers in this transylvanian village looked like they came out of the victorian age rather than perhaps what transylvania looked like in the 1970s right and like their car breaks down and so they end up in like a horse and buggy yeah which I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure there were horse and buggies in the 1970s, but it still seems kind of weird. Right. It, it, it's this sort of weird meshing of old and new, which is very much what um, this Dracula story is all about anyway. Um, and, and again, Gene Colan's artwork is perfect for that because it doesn't seem wrong. No, and it's doing a lot of the things that... like. Hammer Studios is a great comparison because what Hammer was doing at this time was it was taking old supernatural and and monster-related properties that had been popular in the past and was bringing them into the present, but in ways that allowed them to push the envelope. The old ones were black and white. Hammer was going to do color. The old ones were relatively tame in their depictions of, of violence and... and uh, monster mayhem sexuality sexuality um hammer was going to push the envelope with all of that i mean by the time you get to the mid to late 70s i mean there's straight up nudity uh depictions of homosexuality all kinds of stuff going on that you just would not have seen in older movies um 
And so that's sort of an interesting parallel to this moment in time for Marvel where with the relaxation of the code, they get to push the envelope on all of these things that, that before were, were taboo. But like I'm looking at like say page eighteen in this comic where Frank um, slugs Genie. Yep. To, to get her to calm down, and you can see a fairly good portion of her bosom there. Right. I mean, it's like a few inches from seeing very forbidden territory. Right, and and that's very daring for a Marvel comic in the early nineteen seventies. Well, yeah, I've been reading the Fantastic Four comics from this era, and, you know, you wouldn't see uh, Sue Richards in an outfit like this, or you wouldn't see Sue Richards depicted like no. this, or even, like, Medusa or Crystal. No, you have to wait till the 90s for that. Oh, God, that costume. <laughs> oh, the biker gang soccer mom look. Yep, or, or the one where the four was cut out. Oh. Sue Storm, that was actually... Sue Storm had a lot of bad fashion uh, in, th in the 90s. The comic where that appeared and she's like wearing the vest with the huge gun on the cover, that was my first um, modern Fantastic Four comic. I'm sorry? <laughs> it's so bad. I mean, I mean, credit to Tom DeFalco and um, Paul Ryan. That I believe that's Paul Ryan. Um that was a fairly good story in itself, but just, like, that costume is so bad. And and so very 90s. But, again, as we keep saying, this is not a Fantastic Four podcast. If you want that, go listen to the Fantastic Cast. But, yeah, so let's talk about Astonishing Tales number 12. Uh, Terror stalks the Everglades. Cover date is June 1972. Writer is Roy Thomas. Artist is Steve Buscema. Inker is Dan Adkins. Letter is John Costa. Man Thing sequence written by Lynn Ween. Drawn by Neil Adams. Cover is by John Buscema, Joe Sinnott, and John Costa. A mysterious plane makes a midnight landing at Miami International Airport. Aboard are Kazar, Marvel's Anson Tarzan, and Master of Savage Land, as well as two S.H.I.E.L.D. agents named Dr. Barbara, Bobby Morse, and her fiancé, Dr. Paul Allen. After a brief scuffle with airport security over his escaped saber-toothed tiger, Zabu, Kazar and his shield friends head into the Everglades in a helicopter. Bobby explains to Kazar that they saw him out in the Antarctica because of the missing scientist named Ted Salas, who disappeared in the Everglades some weeks ago. The only clue they have is Salas' girlfriend, suspected AIM agent Ellen Brand, who they found wandering the swamp some days ago, her face horribly scarred and her mind gone. Before we can m learn more, however, the helicopter is shot down by agents of AIM, also hunting for Salas, and crash lands in the swamp. Kazar and Zabu are forced to rescue the two unconscious government agents and fight off the swamp's hungry alligators. Zabu's animal instincts then detects and leads the group to a secret government compound they were headed for. There, they find Dr. Wendell and the comatose Dr. Wilma Calvin. Calvin has apparently been comatose since Bobby left him some weeks ago, only managing to regain consciousness long enough to mutter the names Ted Salas and Man-Thing. Dr. Wendell explains that Man-Thing is a creature that has been spotted by locals in recent weeks that he fears may have killed Ted Salas. Unbeknownst to them, Man-Thing itself eavesdrops on the conversation just outside the lab. 
the second person narration reveals to us that Ted Salas is the creature called Man-Thing and proceeds to recap the events of Savage Tales number one. The flashback then tells us how Man-Thing saved an oblivious Dr. Calvin from a gun-wielding redneck in a swamp, only for the lab to be mobbed by angry townspeople accusing Calvin of creating a monster roaming the swamp. Capture Bobby and are holding her hostage, demanding Calvin come out and face mob justice. Man-Thing attacks the mob, allowing Bobby to get free, but AIM agents hidden in the mob shoot Dr. Calvin in the back as she tries to communicate with the Man-Thing. The flashback ends as Kazar detects something lurking outside the window of the lab. Kazar leaps through the closed window and pursues the Man-Thing, chasing the creature into an AIM trap. The Man-Thing quickly murders an AIM agent in the pit with him. While trying to aid the creature, Kazar is accidentally knocked into the pit trap and comes face to face with the horror that is the Man-Thing. And with this story, the Man-Thing is fully and officially a part of the Marvel Universe. Very much so. And in fact, in fact, as opposed to you know how he's depicted last time, we're getting, in my opinion, fantastic John Buscema artwork here. Absolutely. Which is definitely in the Marvel style. Yes. Um, with with the exception of that that middle sort of flashback sequence, which is rendered in black and white, is, is different. That's the uh, uh, the Neil Adams section. Which and that and that part is pretty obviously um, sal- repurposed from a Man Thing story that would have appeared in Savage Tales number two. Right. Which never materialized. It would materialize later on, I think nineteen seventy five or seventy four, but without this story. Right. Um, but yeah, it's delicious John Buscema artwork. As an old Avengers fanboy, this does my heart good. Right. And uh, how about that? Uh, the 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 Shield agents we've got here. Bobby, Bobby's in this book. <laughs> Mockingbird. Every Mockingbird, everybody. Wackos represents. Everyone forgets that Mockingbird started out as a Kazar supporting character and eventual love interest. Right. And I'm sorry, and... but. I love me some Clint Barton, but it's kind of weird that she went from being a Kazar character to hanging out with Clint Barton. You bite your lying tongue, sir. <laughs> you will not speak be- badly of Clint Barton in my presence. But, well, I'll say this. Paul Allen is about the most boorish S.H.I.E.L.D. agent I've ever seen. Yeah, he he's, pre- he's pretty... Uh, again, I, I, I have my notes. Fiance, Dr. Paul Allen, eh? This guy's no Clint Barton. Exactly. <laughs> Which you, you kind of wonder how she's ending up with a guy like this. And of course, next issue we find out how she's ending up with a guy like this. Right. Um, I don't think it outright states in this issue that Bobby and her fiance are S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, merely that their work is top secret government work. But, I mean, they're fighting AIM, they're clearly S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. They're they're fighting game. They 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 are shield agents. And any time that she shows up later, it's clearly stated that she was a shield agent. Right. She was a shield scientist, but they would occasionally put her on agent work. Right. Which I think they do in Agents of Shield too, right? Um. Yes. Yes. That's. Uh, I don't know if she's a scientist in that. Although she does. There are there are episodes where she ends up helping in the lab, so she has some scientific training, I imagine. I. I've definitely saw her, seen her wearing a lab coat. That means scientist to me. Fair enough. 
we have, we do see it clearly stated here that Ellen from Savage Tales was an AIM agent. Right. I would have guessed Hydra when I was reading the story, but that may be the MCU corrupting me. Right. There's a lot of overlap in adapting those two villainous groups. Speaking of MCU, apparently Ellen was in Iron Man 3. Yeah, she is... Um, she's one of the metahumans that has been given the extremis. Um, the woman that Tony Stark fights when he's lost his armor and he's in the small town. Yeah, yeah. that's Ellen. Yeah, which makes me wonder, does that mean there's not going to be a Man-Thing movie? There already is a Man-Thing movie, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, but that's not official MCU Man-Thing. Right, thing. no. I would say, if anything, they would probably adapt him, like... I don't see him getting a whole movie. Like, I could see maybe if there was a, a story arc in one of the TV shows that called for something weirdly supernatural that he could show up but yeah they would have to find a way to write around the fact that ellen brant has already appeared although i'm not sure if she ever gets named fully i guess it's only in the credits or maybe like on some kind of graphic or something that she's called ellen brand yeah i I mean that's sort of like in the the uh, ed norton incredible hulk movie where the the kid in the computer lab is supposed to be amadeus cho but it's never explicitly said Gotcha. I, I forgot all about that. Um, let's see. Um, l- looking back at the first page, um, Zabu is escaping. Mm-hmm. And is it just me or... All the KSR stories I've ever read that take place outside of the Savage Land seem to involve a saber-toothed tiger Zabu escaping. That does seem to be a common element. Does the Savage Land just have very lax leash laws? I would think so, and and Kazar in particular, I think, can get away with a lot there. Uh, but you know, we're not in the Savage Land anymore. Put that thing on leash, and and it, that is a deadly. Predator. But it also seems striking to me that these government agents have almost no pull with local authorities. None whatsoever. They don't. They can't like show their shield identification and be like, back off. Which, I mean, is S.H.I.E.L.D. common knowledge at this point in the Marvel Universe? Probably not. Okay, so it's a bit like the CIA pre-1960, where it's like, I can't straight out say that I work for the CIA. But you would think they would have some sort of credential that, that even if it didn't say S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, I'm sh- I would think they would be issued something so that they could get cooperation. Crap, did I just admit I work for the CIA? Perhaps. Crap, I gotta go under cover. <laughs> Alright, so let's go forward a little bit. Yeah, so um, so as they get to the swamp, that's where we get a big old retcon bomb on that first version of the Man-Thing origin. What's that? Um, that Ted Salas wasn't just an independent researcher working for the government, but was actually the leader of this secret U.S. scientific project. Okay. And and yeah. that Ellen was not just a greedy femme fatale, but was an agent of AIM. Although it's understandable that you couldn't tell that because there were no Charlie Brown beekeeper suits present. <laughs> but yeah, so so in sort of retelling and revising that origin, um, they they're more able to more fully bring these characters into 
the recognizable Marvel universe. What we talked about last time, how it felt like a Marvel story, and there were hints at things that connected mm-hmm. to the Marvel universe, like the like it being a super soldier serum and things like that. But it's not right. outright said. In this one, they outright make it a Marvel story. Very much so, and even the, and again, I like that because it does link it to the Marvel universe that we know. But again, like we stated earlier. Um, th- this is still on the periphery right. of the Marvel Universe. It's not in the core, which is Manhattan. Uh, it is still on the periphery. It's out here in the Everglades. Right. We've... And it's even using characters who exist on the periphery, like Kazar, um, to tell this story. Right. Um, also, I just have to say, in the this is page uh, five, I think, uh, when AIM shoots the helicopter down. Um, and... and, and uh, Bobby asks, what's happening? And Kazar says, the craft is falling. Kazar, he, he's a bit literal, isn't he? A bit. Um. <laughs> like, I'm getting a distinct Drax in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie vibe from him. Hold on. I'm looking at the panel now. Paul, the motor, it's stopped. What's happening? Can't you feel it, girl? The craft is falling. No, it can't be. I'll guide it. I'll glide her in as best I can. Helicopters don't glide. The, the, the helicopters don't, they don't glide. They don't have wings. They don't. I mean, you, you can't glide a helicopter. Yeah. Your helicopter stops, which, stops operating, you drop. Which the point of this seems to be that Paul is an idiot, too, because the very next panel <laughs> the very next panel says, with a sickening thud, the helpless copter strikes the tepid waters below. So where did Paul get his doctorate? Um, clearly not anywhere that teaches helicopter piloting. Or aerodynamics. Right. So Kazar and Zabu save the two S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, you know, fully trained, qualified S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, from drowning. Right. And then also from the uh, alligator. Which I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, so they make it to the swamp, or sorry, they make it out of the swamp to the research facility, and then we then we get to our flashback. Right. Um, and which... one thing I'll say uh, real quick about that that alligator scene is that it's weirdly reminiscent of our introduction to Man Thing in his first appearance. Yeah, where he, he the part where he snaps the alligator's neck. Yeah. And then you see Kazar do something similar on page seven. Right. Where he's... Uh, yeah, he, he's basically just choke-holding the, the alligator. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, they rescue them, they get to the lab, and then we find out that Man-Thing is eavesdropping outside of the window. Um, page nine, we see our first depiction of a artist other than um, Morrow depicting Man-Thing. And I definitely have to say I prefer his depiction last issue in Savage Tales. Yeah, this one, it's a little bit more of a a sort of shaggy beast. Like, he's he's furry. Yeah, and it's it's less of a muck monster, less of an inhuman. What the heck is this? As it, it's a hulking figure, right? And I can't help but think that some of that might be crap. We need to make this guy look less like Swamp Thing. 
Maybe, but then we flip over to the Neil Adams pages, Neil Adams pages in the next few pages. And Neil Adams and clearly looks- got the memo on what the first issue was doing. Exactly. So big difference there. In the Neil Adams pages, we see Bobby taking taken hostage, which, I mean, for a woman who later becomes a really kick-ass superhero. She has been to Damsel in Distress at least twice in this magazine. Right, and this is, again, still fairly early in her existence as a character. And, like I said, people tend to forget, but Mockingbird, the awesome secret agent, was originally sort of the the female lead opposite Kazar. Yeah, which I guess which is, is... Which would I put mean, her I... very much in the Jane mold. Yeah. I, again, I've never read these stories of this character who, again, is... I say keep saying again, again. But <laughs> one of my favorite Marvel characters because I love the West Coast Avengers. Yeah. It's my, it's my favorite Avengers team. I, I'm right there so, with you. So I have a great affinity for Bobby Morse. And seeing her like this, which I've never seen her this way, it's really weird seeing her being that damsel in distress, cause, especially considering some of the crap she does later. <laughs> Right. And, I mean, she's very much a character who, thankfully, got rescued from her early appearances. We, in this Neil Adams flashback, Man-Thing cripples a redneck. Right. With his touch. And fairly fairly quickly, like, what, maybe 15 minutes later, there is a mob outside of the S.H.I.E.L.D. facility demanding mob justice. Yeah, these people move fast. Like... Like, even going back to Tomb of Dracula, the villagers waited at least overnight. Right. This is like 15 minutes later, as far as I could tell. I mean, I, and this is before cell phones, too, so, you know, that's impressive. Right. Um, on when the flashback ends, we get... Kazar saying detecting the faint smell of brimstone on page seventeen. Right. Does does man thing smell like brimstone? Yes, that is a thing. Okay, because I guess that's the first time that's been mentioned. Yeah, and I mean, he didn't really leave anyone alive in that first appearance except for Ellen. So, I guess there would be no one left to comment on it. But but yeah, there there's this and. It seems to be related to because I think the the burning touch is also supposed to be like a, a a brimstone kind of thing. Now, do they establish the anyone who knows fear thing in this issue? That is a good question. I don't remember if they actually spell it out. Let's see. Uh, no, you reach out to stop him. He knows with curiosity that his flesh smolders from your touch. Right. But it doesn't mention anything about fear. Right. Um, I'm wondering if that would maybe come next. I'm wondering if that's a Steve Gerber thing. That sounds like a Steve Gerber thing. It really does sound like a Steve Gerber thing. Although I, I could see, like, based on where this issue ends, I could see in the next issue Man Thing touching Kazar and Kazar not being afraid of him and it not having any effect. You're right. That is an that issue. You're right. Okay, so they established it next issue. I, so. Okay, excellent. So that's, I guess, Roy Thomas established I haven't that. read ahead, but but uh, just based on where this issue ended, that's what I would expect the next thing to be. 
Yeah, I, I admit I, I read ahead to do summaries. So, yeah, uh, Kazar burst through the window of the lab to attack Man-Thing, uh, but then decides to not attack Man-Thing, but instead track him into the swamp, where he tracks him right into a aim trap. Right. Uh, I kind of imagine an aim trap being a little bit more complicated than a pit covered with grass. Yeah, they. I mean, this is, for some reason, aim who, again, just a few pages earlier, had a giant cannon to shoot down a helicopter with. Suddenly, they have reduced to, like, guerrilla tactics. Yeah, I mean, aren't... Isn't AIM supposed to be the super scientist terrorist organization in the Marvel Universe? I would at least expect the hole to be disguised by a hologram or something instead of just grass. Or be like a very complicated force field generator. Right. But no, it, it, it's a hole in the ground with grass covering it. And in, in goes the man thing. Yep, and then in goes Kazar right. after him. Right, after and a brief yeah. fight with some, some AIM uh, henchmen. And then that's the end of the issue. Um, I can kind of see why Kazar didn't become a huge success, uh, but this was a very enjoyable adventure story for me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the the one thing I can say about having Kazar around in this issue is that it gives us someone to identify with, which you need once Ted Salas is out of the picture. Yes, which he is completely out of the picture, and I don't think we see Ted Salas again for years. Yeah. Um, I mean, he gets mentioned, of course, but, but yeah. Um, with, with the man thing unable to speak, um, not really having his own inner monologue, but we're, we're, we're back to that, that second-person caption box stuff, which I, I, it's growing on me. I kind of like it. Um, mm -hmm. but, but with all of that going on, you need someone to drive the plot other than the, the villains. And, and Kazar fills that role okay. I mean, he's not the most interesting character. He's a, he's a Tarzan riff. But... Um, but he he fits well enough for this story, and I kind of I understand why they bring Kazar into the story. The Everglades is kind of like a jungle, right? Um, it it gives a, it's someone who is fully human, but would be more on equal footing than say just an average government agent. And I'm interested in the backstory here of why they thought they needed to bring Man-Thing back fairly quickly. Uh, why, and why they decided to put him in Kazar, of all places. Um, but, it's, again, it's a fun adventure story, but I wouldn't seek out a Kazar book except for the fact it has Man-Thing in it. Right, yeah, it, it continues the story. It It's, again, it's where you get the origin updated to fit the Marvel Universe more explicitly. Um, I'm not sure if this one is collected in any of the Man-Thing volumes, or if it's... I don't know. Hold on. I, I could look and see if it was that real quick. Okay. Essential Man-Thing. I would expect it to be. Probably, but I can check that real quick. Uh Trails Tales 12 through 13, so yes, it is in Okay, there. and that's basically that story arc. Indeed. It's those two, two issues, and then it's gone. And then it doesn't pick up again until Adventures Into Fear. Right. Yeah. 
so yeah, this is definitely a collected in a Central Man Thing Volume One. Does Man Thing have a masterworks? Um, I would be really surprised if he did. Um, not that. I mean, I'm sure that specific runs have been. I, I know the Gerber run has been collected. Um, nope, it does not have a masterwork. Yeah, yeah, I think they've been collecting runs by creative team rather than doing the the masterworks thing. Okay, so they do have. Okay, so they have a Man Thing omnibus, which was published on October seventeenth, two thousand twelve. Right. It collects Savage Tales number one, Astonishing Tales twelve through thirteen. And so on. So a lot of the same stuff that the Essential Man thing covers. So if you want it in color, the Omnibus is the way to go. Yeah. Or, I'm pretty sure a lot of this stuff is on Comixology. Yeah, probably. I can check that too, though. Um, if, if nothing... And, and um, especially for back issues, I've become a big fan of Comixology. Uh, no. It is not. Interesting. Then then it looks like the Essential or the Omnibus uh, would be the way to go. Yeah. Um, let's see. We have Man-Thing by Steve Gerber. Right. right. Um, let's see. Man-Thing, the 2017 series yeah. written by R.L. Stein. Right. I mean, that that's really cool, right? That R.L. Stein is doing a Man-Thing book. Um, I haven't read it yet. I, we, we will get there eventually. I like that um, there is a picture of Man-Thing with Battleaxe. Yes. <laughs> that should be interesting. And it's just nice having his own title again. I mean, for years, Man-Thing has been sort of a bit player and supporting player in other characters' books. Yeah, so Comixology has the Steve Gerber stuff. It doesn't have this earlier stuff. Okay, well, and the, the Gerber stuff is really the famous stuff. I mean, that's what everyone... People who say they like Man-Thing... They really mean they like the Steve Gerber man thing. I mean, I'm really looking forward to it. I've been reading Steve Gerber's uh, Marvel 2-in-1 because I've been reading along with the Fantastic Cast coverage of that series, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And it's definitely more fun than some of the Fantastic Four issues they're covering. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think that's all we have to say about Man-Thing for this issue. Absolutely. But... It, again, good issue. Kazar is not the best character, but if you're wanting to get a better feel for the early Man-Thing stories, then this is, this is a fun adventure. Yeah, I mean, I had fun reading it. I'm definitely looking forward to more Man-Thing. And, I mean, when I read this issue, the cliffhanger left me wanting more. Right. And, and on top of that, I mean, how often do you get to see a, a, a Marvel monster with a selection written by Len Wein and drawn by Neil Adams. Not often. Like, that's... You've basically got this this sort of slice of DC style right in the middle of your Marvel horror book. Which, I mean, Neil Adams was doing covers for Marvel at this point. He was. I mean, we just talked about an issue, Werewolf by Night, which he did the cover for. Right, that's true. But I don't think he's done a significant interior work since X-Men, I want to say, the late X-Men issues. That sounds right to me. Just before it got canceled? Right. So, that's interesting to me. Alright, I think that does it for Man-Thing. Um, let's move on to some sadder news. Yeah, um, we found out during post-production for this episode 
that we have lost one of the sort of cornerstones of comics and superheroes as we understand them. Stan Lee. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's... It's really hard. Because uh, I think for both Trey and I, Stan Lee is like this extra grandparent we had. Like an extra uncle or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, he was the face of comic books. Like, even when 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 we were kids, he wasn't really writing them anymore. But he was still the public face of Marvel. Exactly. And, you know, we both started reading in the 90s, around the time where Stan was starting to, you know, do a lot of interviews, talk about, hey... Um, this is how I created Spider-Man, this is how I created the X-Men, and I know for a lot of kids, you know, you're all reading Image Comics, but during the early 90s, I learned to read reading classic Spider-Man, classic Hulk, all you know, Spider-Man classics, Essentials, all those things, they're what I learned to read on. Yeah, and I mean... As a kid, I I really there was a lot more DC comics in my diet than there was Marvel. But that said, Stan Lee was probably no, he was definitely the first comic book creator that I could recognize. And it's not even really because of the comics. It was I don't know if you remember this James, but the, the Marvel Action Hour. Um Saturday mornings, uh, it was a syndicated block of Iron Man and Fantastic Four cartoons, and Stan Lee introduced them. He he did live action intros talking about the characters before each each block, and so that was the first time I ever saw a comic book creator talking about the things that he had helped create. Um, there was this point in. Pizza Hut was putting out... It had to be 1993. Oh, yeah, the, okay, the X-Men videos. The X-Men videos. Because he did intros on those, too. Right. And that's really where I got to know Stan. And I'll, I'll, I'll see if I could drop some audio from those into the episode. Him talking about creating the X-Men. He, he was just this vibrant force really very strange. We had been creating comics. There was the Spider-Man, there was the Hulk, a few others. And, and it's very difficult to figure out how a superhero becomes a superhero. You can't keep having characters bitten by a radioactive spider or hit by a, a gamma ray or zapped by cosmic rays. Then it occurred to me there are such things as mutants. Well, if you could say, and we have, a, I think, three of them right here. <laughs> if you could say that somebody is just a mutant, he was just born that way, that's a, a logical explanation, an easy explanation, and I can forget about radioactivity. And we wouldn't be anything without Stan. I mean, not even, I'm not even like talking about this podcast, because, again, this podcast wouldn't be anything without Stan Lee. 
we would not be talking about Marvel horror. We, you know, the, the way we introduce our episodes, the way we do our show notes, they're all taken from Stan. It's all a huge love letter to Stan. And he, as far as the era of comics that we're talking about, at least at this stage of the podcast, he helped invent the language that all of these other creators learned to speak. And it's not even that. Like, who I am as a person, so much of that is Stan Lee. I mean, we grew up in the 90s, okay? It wasn't cool to be... It wasn't cool to be a geek then. It, 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 there wasn't this overarching nerd culture. You know, comics, superheroes, geekdom had not taken over pop culture at that point. You know, you were reading a comic book in a school cafeteria, you still got looked down upon. But at the same time, if you were smart, if you were geeky, if you were nerdy, Stan through characters like Peter Parker, through Reed Richards, he told you that was okay. I mean, it, he let... And not just okay, it was a part of what made those characters heroic. Exactly. Like, yes, you can get picked on by guys like Flash Thompson, but, you know, you kind of had a kindred spirit in Peter Parker. And you knew that there was some, that in the end, it was okay. There was no shame in it. Stanley was just such a huge part of my life. Yeah, and and a lot of ink will be spilled, and, and rightfully so, on the collaborative nature of comics. But, and absolutely, the artists that Stan worked with are just as important to the characters that they co-created. But that said, the words that Stan Lee gave to those characters, the, the, the poetry of his writing, is an essential part of what made those comics work. And it's an, it, it is part of why we still read them, and why we still care about those characters, and why now multi-million dollar movies are being made that directly quote those comics from the 60s and 70s. I think the best thing that you could say about Stan is that he was as deserving of a, as much hyperbole as he himself spewed up to the comics page. He was amazing. He was spectacular. He was fantastic. He was uncanny. And I know even though I never had the pleasure of meeting the man, I will deeply miss him.
Yes, yes. Um, he, even in recent years, when he wasn't really a part of comics creation anymore, he, he was still doing, you know, the cameos, he would write a little something here and there, but he was still the elder statesman of Marvel Comics. He still had a place at the table, and he was still there reminding us of the generation that created all of this pop culture stuff that has become so important to all of us. Again, none of us would be here except for Stan. And I'm not... Don't think for a second... I'm deriding people like Jack Kirby, like Steve Ditko, like John Romita. All of them have such a huge role in why we're here. But, and there's something magical about that combination of all those guys at Marvel at the same time that I don't know that, I don't know that it'll ever really be replicated that way again. Stan made the bullpen the bullpen. It's... There's a reason that... Comic books, Marvel Comics, carried the, the title, even to the days where you and I started reading them, Stan Lee Presents. Because the character that was Marvel, the embodiment of hey these guys are a bit different these guys aren't that muscle bound guy who can leap buildings in a single bound and don't get me wrong we both love that guy but these guys are a little bit weirder yeah and it's okay for you to be a little weird too yeah and there was a time when Stan Lee expressed something like regret for never really pursuing his other creative passions. He had said in some interviews that he really wanted to sort of try and write the great American novel or get into movie making or, or things like that. And what's so amazing is that he lived to see a shift in American culture to where the things that he created took on just as much importance as any other work of literature to the point where the highest grossing films of the year are Marvel movies. Exactly. I mean, this is a guy who used to be ashamed to admit what he did at dinner parties. Right. To a guy with he ha he has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, right? I believe so, yeah. And he's doing interviews, and he's being celebrated from the rooftops. He's he's met presidents, and Stan, you had a lot to be proud of. Yeah, and and I guess if if there's anything that I can sort of say at this point, and I've been struggling all day to come up with 
what to say. Um, I've been really thankful to see all of the various creators and critics and actors and filmmakers all sort of sharing their memories and experiences and tributes to Stan Lee. And I don't have anything like that. I never met the man. But I can't express how much I appreciate all of the work and creativity and ideas that he gave us, that he put out into the world. Because it really did affect me personally, but it changed the way stories could be told in comics. And and from there, in other media like film and television. We're all going to remember Stan in our own way. And we're all going to do our own memorials in our own way. You know, Trey and I, we knew when we heard the news, we had to talk about it on the podcast. And for my dinner tonight, I had Stan's standard lunch. I had two poached eggs, uh, some toast, some bacon, some sliced tomatoes, and some black coffee. Which sounds like a pretty good meal, to be honest. It it was good. It was good. So, you know, another thing I could thank thank Stan for. Yeah, and um, I went and dug out of my long box. Um, It's it's an issue of the Mighty Thor 463, which is from the early 90s. Um, Which means it's not one that Stan wrote. But it's no. it's from his time as publisher, um, and he signed it, and it's as close as I'll ever be to him is to hold that comic in my hands. Yeah, it's the thing about Stan, though. You know, even those of us who never got to meet him, we felt so close to him. Yeah. And that's just... Well, he talked directly to us, whether it was his introductions on the videos and cartoons, or whether it was his soapbox in in between issues of the comics. He made himself a character in the ongoing story of Marvel. He he was someone that could talk to us and, and relate to us and, and sort of tell us about how things were going and what was coming next. Yeah. I mean, Stanley has actual family. He has a daughter who I'm sure is missing him very much now. And he has other family as well. Um, like his brother, Larry Lieber. And certainly our hearts go out to them as they must be grieving right now. We know Stan wasn't really our family. But it felt like he was our friend. Excelsior, Stan. Excelsior. Anyway, folks, thank you so much for joining us for our second episode of Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. We deeply appreciate it. As always, you can contact us at tomb of ideas at gmail.com 
Um, we're on uh, Twitter um, at Tomb of Ideas. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. Sorry to end, end the episode on a down note, guys, but we really appreciate you coming out. Next episode, we'll return to our usual format where we'll be talking about Tales to Astonish number 13, Marvel Spotlight number 3, Tomb of Dracula number 2, and Astonishing Tales number 13. So please find us on the podcast outlet of your choice. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play. Um, please subscribe, like us. Um, we appreciate any feedback, so please do contact us through our email or our Twitter or our Facebook. Um, if you have stories or reminiscences about Stan, um, we'd love to hear those too. Um, and uh, we hope to see you again next time. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior! Ha 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 